0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you, we praise you, Lord, again for your word, and we thank you, Father God, for the example today, and I just thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our trials and difficulties that you are faithful, that you're in control. And Lord, as we look at this infamous crossing of the Red Sea, I pray, Lord, that we too would understand and know that there's times when we feel like we're being trailed by the enemy and our our backs are against the sea, but Father God, you're in control and you're faithful. So I just pray for each person who's here, just prepare their hearts to hear from your word. Again, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be our teacher tonight. We ask all these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I titled the message tonight, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And literally, that's where we're going to find Israel. They're going to be between a rock and a hard place. They're going to have the enemy trailing behind them, and they're in a time of great difficulty. Now, by way of review, in the past few chapters, we saw Israel finally, after over 400 years in bondage in Egypt, get delivered. But as they were delivered, it took great tasks on the part of God to finally Pharaoh let the people go. And it's amazing, as we're going to look through tonight, that Pharaoh's heart remains hardened even after the death of the firstborn son. So we saw the deliverance of Egypt, and remember that Egypt in the Bible is a typology of the world, and we know that bondage is a typology of sin. And so they were delivered out of bondage, out of sin, as they were taken out of the world. And we too, as we become Christians, we give our life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're aliens here. We are no longer citizens of this world. We're new creations in Christ. We've been delivered from sin, and now this is not our home. Heaven's our home. We we live here, but this is not our home. We also saw that deliverance came through, ultimately, the Passover, And just by way of review, again, remember that there were nine plagues beforehand, and each plague, Pharaoh's heart grew harder and harder and harder, and refused to let the people go. And it's interesting that they were not delivered until the Passover. And the Passover, as you recall, was the death of the firstborn son. They had to take the the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, and then they had to put it on the, the mantle and the doorpost and at the foot of the door. And it obviously was a picture, a clear picture of the cross. And every home that had the shed blood upon it, the angel of death would pass over. And that's where Passover came from. And it was only after Passover that there was deliverance out of bondage. And that's the way that it makes perfect sense because it's only after Passover, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we experience deliverance from bondage and sin. Amen? And so that's what it was a picture of as he looked at the Passover. Those that were covered by blood that were, were delivered. Now... God led them out, and he led them out with a pillar, of, a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire. It was the same pillar, and it, it, would, it was a cloud by day, and it was a pillar of fire by night. And so that's what we pick up. They've been led out, and can somebody get me a napkin or something? I'm bleeding like crazy up here. God led them out with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So we pick up in Exodus chapter 14, and we'll, again, I titled the message between a rock and a hard place. We're going to see here right in the few verses, first few verses why. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Heroroth, between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. Now, Moses hears from the Lord, and he's directed by God where he should go. And as he's directed by God, he is sent directly into a place that would make absolutely no sense if you were a military leader. Where does, he, where does God direct them? They've been directed and delivered out of bondage over 400 years. Finally, after being delivered out of bondage, God directs them. And where does He send them? He sends them directly into a place where it looks like they're going to be dead ducks. And you would think to yourself, why in the world would the Lord do that? But again, He, he had heard from God. It's a seemingly like a military blunder. It looks like a trap. There's no way of escape. Now let me give you some definitions for each of these words. The first word, pie. Roth means the mouth of caves. And it seems to be that it was a mountain filled with caves. So they're, they're camping between a mountain that's filled with caves. And on the other side, the, the word is Migdal. And you see that word a lot in the New Testament. The word means tower. And so they're camping between these two mountains. And uh, there's a mountain on the right and there's a mountain on the left. And they're opposite Baal-Zephon. And it's interesting that that means Baal of the north. And those of you who've been studying with us as we've gone through the Old Testament... We know that Baal is a Canaanite god. He's a, the sex god of the Canaanites. He's a, it was a god that they sacrificed children to. And it's interesting that Egypt had been infected with the gods of the Canaanites because evidently they had built a place of worship. So where are they? They're camped between a camp of caves, migdal, a tower, which may literally have been a tower or a fortress, and then a, a worship center for an ungodly, for a false god. Now, again, they had over 300 gods in Egypt, so it doesn't surprise me that they took on some Canaanite gods. They took on every god they could get. And we found that every god they had couldn't sum up to the one and true living God. Amen? And all the other gods that they called upon as the plagues came, there was never any deliverance because they did not know the true and living God. So God led them out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage, to a place where there were mountains on both sides, and the sea was behind them. That's what it says at the end of verse 2 there. Verse 3. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel... They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So Pharaoh's going to look out, even after he said, Let them go. And remember that the people, after the death of the firstborn, they finally said, They cried out and said, Go. And remember that God commanded the Israelites to go and ask of their neighbors, command of their neighbors, that they give them stuff. So not only did they send them away, but they sent them away happily. They said, look, take the stuff, take whatever you want, just leave us alone. Your God is plaguing our nation. We can't take it anymore. Please go. And you know, the sad part is, instead of repenting, they sent them away. And so they sent them away, and here their memory becomes short. And we're going to see in the next few verses why. But they send them out, and we know that Pharaoh finds out where they've gone. And they don't go the direct way to Canaan. They go the farther way around. And we talked last last time about why. Because God wanted to put them through the wilderness. And if they had gone through the wilderness directly and hadn't disobeyed God, it would have taken them about a year instead of what could have been about a 20-day walk. But God was going to use that year to prepare them for the promised land. And sometimes as believers, we too will go through the wilderness. We're going to go through times where God is preparing us for the land of promise. And that's what our life in Christ is. And so Pharaoh s- saw them that they were closed in. So not only did God lead them to this camp, but he brought it to the enemy's attention. So why would, li- why would God lead his people into such a predicament? Why would he put them in a place where they're surrounded by mountains, put them in a place where the sea is behind them, and put them in a place where the enemy was going to be coming for them? You might say, well, thanks a lot. You know, I was in Boston. My- 400 years and this is the reward i get why in the world would god do this let me tell you several reasons why first of all that they might have a testimony before the world and an opportunity to glorify god whenever we go through trials it's an opportunity to glorify god and it's an opportunity to have a testimony before the world when you're going through difficulty especially the people that know you're a christian they're watching you amen it's easy to be a christian when you're on the cruise ship to heaven and everything's great But how do you react when there's physical difficulty? How do you react when you're going through financial struggles? How do you react when there's been a death in your family? Are you still praising God when you're out of work? And people are watching you to see how you react during those difficult times. And so when we go through difficulties and we're put in situations that seem overwhelming and they seem like they're impossible to overcome, know that that's an opportunity for the gospel. We also see that they might experience His presence. We'll see that in the text tonight. That They might witness the power of God. It's only when we're in the most difficult times of our life that we truly are able to see God's power. And then lastly, they might realize their total reliance upon him. It's when we come to the end of ourselves, we realize that without him, we can do absolutely nothing. So verse 4, verse 4 says this, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Now he's speaking to Moses. He says to Moses, look, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh, and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, this is interesting. Israel's difficult circumstances would serve as an opportunity for God to reveal Himself yet again to the Egyptians. Egypt is a type of what? What? The world. Bondage is a type of sin. Egypt is a type of the world. So, this difficulty would be yet another opportunity for God to reveal Himself to the world. Amen? Now, he, you would think that Egypt would have gotten it by now. Again, it made no military sense, it made no, it made no physical sense, it made no rational sense, but it was all part of God's plan to put them exactly where they were, to reveal themselves to the Egyptians that, again, He was the Lord. But you'd think they'd know by now. He had turned water into blood. Remember that? He plagued them with frogs, he plagued them with lice, he plagued them with flies, he plagued them with diseased livestock, he plagued them with head-to-toe boils, he plagued them with hail, he plagued them with locusts, he plagued them with darkness, and he plagued them with the Passover. You think they might have figured out by now that he's the Lord. Amen? Remember how they responded initially? Remember what Pharaoh's initial response was when Moses showed up? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey you? Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Well, I think you know him now. Amen. I think all these plagues may have gotten your attention, but yet still God was going to reveal himself to him one more time. And you might say, why would the Lord want to reveal himself one more time to Pharaoh? Here's why I believe. Egypt had one strength left. They had one thing that they were really, really proud of that they still had, even after all the plagues. And the thing that they had was the most powerful army in the world. They had the most incredible army. They they were conquerors of the world. And that was the one strength that they were still holding on to. It was that last bastion of hope that they had was we are still a great and a strong army. And yet God was going to give them one last opportunity to see who he is as he wipes out that one last remaining strength. You know, sometimes as Christians, we're coming to the end of ourselves and there's that one thing that we hold on to. Well, you know, I've got my 401k plan, as long as I've got that, well, I've got my health, or I've got my position, or I've got my this, and we're holding on to something that keeps us from letting go of everything that God might be in control. And God wants us to let go of everything. And you know what? Pharaoh, before it's all over, is going to lose everything. Everything. You know, we still may have our wealth, our health, our power, our prestige, but God wants us to completely surrender to Him. God will allow difficult circumstances in our lives as an opportunity to glorify Himself. Look at verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have you done this? That we let Israel go from serving us. So, hardened hearts have short memories, It's amazing to me, I'll counsel somebody, they'll be broken on Sunday, and their heart will be hardened on Monday. And They'll be broken because of a difficulty in life, but then, you know, they get over it or things get better and they forget. And these are the hardened hearts of Egypt. What has happened is they were crying out saying, leave, get out of here, you've been tormenting our land, take our stuff, just please go. And now these very same people are saying, we need to go and track them down and bring them back here because you know what, we just lost our labor force. Who's going to build the pyramids? Who's going to make the bricks? All, you know, they're all gone. We lost our downline, right? You know, we lost our pyramid. This pyramid's going to sink. Now we don't have our downline. We need some people to, you know, contribute on the bottom. And you know, if, they don't, if they're not here, we're going to have to do it. You know what? We need to go get those guys and bring them back here. Hardened hearts have short memories. Forgetting the recent tragedy. Focuses instead on the, on the loss of an economical benefit instead of repenting again. Those who had urged the Israelites to quickly leave now desire to go force them to return. And even the people turn on Pharaoh. Pharaoh, why did you let him go? And so Pharaoh is going to respond. And look at his response in verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. He also took 600 choice chariots, all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. Now choice, this is the most high-tech weapon of the day. If you wanted to put it in today's terms, it'd be like having 600 stealth bombers or something. I mean, in those days, nobody had any guns. You know, they, couldn't, they didn't have any machine guns. They didn't have any planes. And chariots could do some severe damage. One chariot, one of these big, huge chariots, could wipe out a lot of people. They were fast-moving. They were high off the ground. And they, they could just smoke people. Some of these chariots carried as many as three people, several with spears. And they'd go by and swords just wipe people out. And so they take these 600-choice chariots... And we know that Israel, when they left, about two million people. And these people are going out, no weapons, just the protection of God. And now here they are, and they've got mountains on both sides, and they've got a sea behind them, and here comes this enemy with these 600 choice chariots. Man, this looks overwhelming. It's like David and Goliath, right? I mean, you know, David looked at Goliath. Goliath was 11 foot 750. And every time he came down to the bottom of the valley of Eli and said, you know, I defy you to come out. I defy you to come out and challenge me and to fight me. And if if you if you win, then our people will serve you. But if I win, your people will serve me. And every time that he came down, it said that the people just they shook and shuddered. And here comes David, thirteen or fourteen years old at the time, delivering cheese to his brothers. It's in the Bible. He was he was delivering cheese. He was the milkman, right? He's delivering cheese to his brothers, and he looks down, and he hears this voice, and, and he doesn't see 11 foot 750. What he sees, he doesn't see 11 foot 750 against little David. He sees this puny man against Almighty God, and we know the end of the story that David picks up five stones, and he goes out, and he takes the, the giant down. Interesting that he took five stones. People wonder why. Well, Goliath had four brothers, and in those days, if you killed one, you had to take out the whole family, so David took five for five, and so he goes out. and He brings them down, and this is the David and Goliath. Here it is. We got two million people. We have no weapons. Here comes the army of Israel. We have no direction to escape. This seems impossible. You know what? When it seems impossible, watch out because God's going to do great things. Amen. When it looks overwhelming, you know when the, when when there's more when there's more uh, bills than there is check. You know when there's when there's less. We don't have enough money. You don't. You know your health's dwindling. Watch God work. When you're looking at you got a boss at work that seems overwhelming, it's impossible to work for, opportunity for the gospel. And so here they are, surrounded on both sides. It looks overwhelming. Here comes Pharaoh, who we know hates him, and here he comes with his 600-choice chariots and his mighty army to come and mow them down. And understand, the chariots were developed by the Egyptians, and they were considered to be an invincible army. But again... Got to look and see who they're going to fight against. We find out just how invincible they really are. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Now, this is going to co- contrast in a couple of verses because the word here, boldness, and if you have the old King James, the word there for boldness is it says they went out with a high hand. And what you know, and I think of a high five, right? I mean, they went out celebrating. They left the camp celebrating two million people can you imagine being the Egyptians these used to be your slaves and now they're coming out of your camp and they're whooping it up and they're celebrating and they got all your stuff on their backs because that's exactly what happened. They came in and pillage your house, and they're, li- you know, they're going down the street with your microwave right on their back, and they're leaving, and they're celebrating, and they're high-fiving, and they're singing Jewish songs, and you're, oh man, and they're go- you know, who's going to build the pyramids, right? Well, they went out with boldness, and they went out celebrating, and they were excited, and the Egyptians had just lost their firstborn, and the Egyptians were no doubt torn up about what had happened, and now they want to wreak their revenge. And now they say, you know, they went out with boldness. Remember that? Let's go get them. Remember them celebrating as they left? We've got them cornered now. We're going to go take our vengeance. We're going to go wreak havoc against them. But they have to remember who they're coming against. So look at verse 9 and 10. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, overtook them camping by the sea of Pahiroth before Baal-Zephon. So look what it says there all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. So there were 600 choice chariots, but he brought all the chariots and all the horsemen. This was going to be a bloody slaughter. Two million people, women and children. 600,000 men and a bunch of women and children. No weapons. Surrounded. Militarily, it looks like a disaster. It's going to be a slaughter. And here they come, marching in, the greatest and most powerful army anywhere in the world. Verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near... The children of Israel lifted their eyes. Now, they lifted their eyes, but they didn't lift them high enough. Because we're going to see they lifted their eyes, and they looked at the Egyptians on their way. No doubt they saw the dust flying in the air. And here come the chariots at full speed. And you know what? Lifting their eyes was the right thing. But instead of lifting to the chariots, they should have lifted them to the Lord. And so often when we're going through difficulties, we lift up our eyes and we look at our circumstances. We look at our difficulties. We look at our checkbook. We look at our, you know, the great, the latest, uh, thing from our doctor t- telling us about our health. And instead of looking up, we look at our circumstances. And that's exactly what happens here. They look at their circumstances. They don't lift their eyes up high enough. How do I know that's true? Look at the rest of what they say. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they go from high-fiving, right? Marching out of town celebrating to fear very quickly. Two verses. Boldness to fear. Joy to being petrified. And here comes the army to wipe me out. What is the only thing that has changed from the time that they went out with boldness to them having great fear? Is God still God? Yes. Is He still in control? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God still love them? Yes. Is His eyes still on them? We talked about this on Sunday morning. God can't take His eyes off of you. Did you know that? He loves you so much, His eyes are always on you. People don't ever think about you. you know, people, we think, we're worried about what people think, they don't ever think about you. Right? You're never on anybody else's mind. No one's thinking about you right now. You're the only one thinking about you. Okay? And a lot of times we think everyone's thinking about you, and they're not thinking. But God's eyes are always on you. And God's eyes were on His people. And you know what? They panicked. Why? Because of their circumstances. The only thing that has changed is their circumstances. God delivered them. God promised to take them into the promised land. God is a, man of, a God of His word. We can trust Him. And instead they panicked. Why? Because their circumstances changed. Same God that delivered them out of Egyptian bondage was still with them. The same God that brought the plagues on Egypt was still with them. But they took their eyes off God and His sufficiency and deliverance and placed them on their circumstances. Difficulties between a rock and a hard place. Opportunity for a testimony, an opportunity to witness to the power of God, an opportunity to experience His presence, an opportunity to realize our total reliance upon Him. It says there that they cried out to the Lord. That's a great place to be. But we know that this is short-lived, as their cries would quickly turn to complaints. Have you ever done that before? You pray and you you cry out to the Lord, but then 30 seconds later you are complaining. You don't, you know, you, you, Lord, you know, here's my situation, Lord, and Lord, I just cry out to you, and I pray, Father God, that you just touch me, and Lord, just give me wisdom, give me direction, heal this mess, and then 30 seconds later, we're complaining. We don't even give God a chance to work, amen? We just, we just fall, and this is exactly what these guys do. They cry out to the Lord, and look at verse 11, because we're going to see exactly what they say. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, does that sound like people that are crying out to the Lord? It said, because there's no graves in Egypt. Now, one of two things is true. Either they have very short memories, and I don't think that's the case, or this is sarcasm. One of the things we know about Egyptians, they were heavily consumed with death, right? You look at Egypt today, you know, the pyramids and the tombs and the mummies and the, I mean, they were heavy, you know, and they they thought they could take their stuff with them. That's why all the mummies were, you know, they pack all their stuff with the mummies, right? Put all your gold and stuff for the, for the next life. Well, I don't think that's going to work. You know, you, you had to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, and it didn't work then or it doesn't work now either. And so here we see that they were consumed with death. And he says, what, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Well, you couldn't have left us there to die? They could have smoked us there. Now you brought us out here into the wilderness. Thanks a lot, Mo. Right? Thanks a lot. We could have stayed home and dealt with this. And so they're complaining and they're murmuring. Why? Because of their circumstances. Now, I know none of you have ever done that, right? I, I, bro, I'm guilty. I mean, you know, we get in our circumstances and we forget that God is still God. And God is still faithful and God is still in control. God will never leave us nor forsake us. His eyes are always upon us. And all of this He does for His ultimate glory. So they're complaining. Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? It Verse 12, "...is not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians?" If it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, then we should die in the wilderness. Now, Egypt is a typology of what? There we go. Third time you guys got it. It's a typology of the world. And sometimes as Christians, we make the same statement. You know what? It would have been better if I had just stayed in the world. It would have been better if I had just stayed in my old life. You know, I didn't go through all the trials I'm going, like I'm going through now. We talked about this on Sunday that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it brings division in your home. I know many people in this room right now, you're the only Christian in your whole family, and it's, t- it's difficult for you sometimes. And you know what? From the world's perspective, it probably would have been easier for you if you just stayed in the world. It wouldn't have been the right thing. You wouldn't have peace, and you wouldn't know God. But sometimes we clamor and we complain. We, we obeyed God, and look what it got us. We're boxed in. The Egyptian army is attacking. We're backed up to the Red Sea. It would have been better if we just stayed in the world. And you know what? This is a song that these Israelites are going to sing for a long time. We had leeks and onions back there. We could have just stayed. We're going to here that later, right? Remember? When they're getting manna and they're, they're, they're getting tired of manna bread and all that stuff. And they're getting tired of manna and what is it? And, and they're saying, we could have stayed in Egypt. And that's like their favorite song, right? Keith Green wrote a song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, right? And so often that's what happens. We want to go back to the world. And they're clamoring to go back to Egypt. Why? Because they don't like their circumstances. Things aren't perfect. You know, I thought I was on the cruise ship to heaven. What happened? I mean, I'm still having hard times even though I'm a Christian. And so that's exactly what happens here. You should have just left us there. You should have left us in bondage. But when they were in bondage, they were crying to be let out. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Now, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Stand still. Isn't that the hardest thing to do when your circumstances are difficult? Be still and know that I'm God. Trust Him. Wait upon the Lord. You know what? Especially, and it's probably true of all of us, but I think especially when you're a guy, there's this thing about you've got to make something happen, right? I know that's my personality. You know, things are difficult. I mean, I'm going to make something happen. This is just, I've got to fix this, right? That's a guy thing. Let's fix it. Instead of just trusting God and waiting upon the Lord. And you notice he says to him, stand still. Be still. Don't do anything. But wait a minute. The, you know, the seas behind us, the mountains are on both sides, and here come the rushing chariots. What do you mean stand still? Just wait. Trust me. Be still. I'm in control. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord. But you don't know it. yet. Yeah, you, you're telling me that, but here, they're, they're getting closer. Look at the dust kicking up. Look, I can, see the, I can see the eyes on the horses now. We're done. We're toast, man. Don't you see the sea? What kind of general are you anyway? You've got mountains on both sides. We're done. And they're panicking. And he's saying, be still. And you will see today the salvation of the Lord. The word salvation there also means deliverance. And it's in the midst of trials, in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, that we will see the hand of God. Egypt, again, a type of the world. There's a day coming when we will see our enemies and this world no more. Just as as Egypt would disappear, just as the Egyptians would go away, and Israel would be delivered into the land of promise, so too will every one of us in this room that's a born-again Christian. There's going to be a day when we will see Egypt or this world no more. Amen? And we will enter into the land of promise. And that's exactly what he's promised him. Why and how does that come? It comes through salvation. And we're going to see where salvation comes from and watch what happens. But look at the next verse. I love this. The Lord will fight for you. Wait a minute. The Lord will fight for you? That's right. You know what? If God is for me, who can be against me? Amen? I used to tell kids in the youth group all the time, you plus God equals the majority. Amen? If you and God are on one side and the rest of your school is on the other, you're on the majority side, amen? Because you plus God equals the majority. And you know what? 600 choice chariots and the, entire, and the greatest army on the face of the planet against these, these sitting duck Israelites was no match. Why? Because God is on Israel's side. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who shall we fear? The Lord will fight for you. Better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without Him. And we can be at peace knowing that the battle truly does belong to the Lord. We don't need to fight. We don't need to strive. We don't need to stress. We can just trust God. Why? Because He's faithful and He's in control. And that means He knows about your problem. He knows exactly what you're going through right this very minute and He loves you and He cares and you're not alone. Remember that. God is a gracious and a merciful and a loving God. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. You know, you can only have peace if you know the prince of peace. Amen? The world has no peace. I'll never forget years ago. I don't do it anymore. But years ago when when internet chat rooms first came around, I used to go in there and witness to people. And, man, you want to talk about getting people fired up. Go into a chat room and just start talking about Jesus. And, man, people would go, ah. And I remember this one guy was just going nuts. And I, I wrote to him. I said, you know what, bro? You need peace. You don't have any peace. Who do you, why do you know I don't have any peace? You know, I'm all, well, maybe because you're, you know, going ballistic on the screen. But I know you don't have peace because you can't have peace unless you know the prince of peace. Amen? You know, Elvis Presley said this. He said he'd give all his wealth, all his fame, all the women, all the stuff, everything he ever did for 30 minutes of peace. Money won't bring you peace. Fame won't bring you peace. Only the prince of peace can give you peace. And the Lord has commanded him through Moses, you know what? You be still and hold your peace, because I've got it in control. No matter what you're going through right now, God's got it in control. Be be at peace, amen? Because God is faithful and gracious and merciful. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now I think this is interesting, because there is a time to pray. And the Bible says to pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. But you know what? There's also a time when we take what we've prayed about and we move. Amen? There's some things you don't need to pray about. Did you know that? God brings an opportunity for you to share your faith with somebody and say, well, let me pray about it. You know, you don't need to pray about that. Just do it. Amen? Guy's sitting across from you and he needs to hear about Jesus and here comes that that opening you can drive a truck through and the Lord's going, you know, talk to him, right? You guys know that feeling, right? You don't need to go home and pray and then come back and do it. Just do it. Amen? Some things you don't need to pray about. And the Lord had said, Behold, you're going to see my salvation. Why are you crying out to me? Don't cry out to me. Tell Israel to go forward. Now, what's in front of them? The Red Sea. Now, this sounds really good, right? Go forward. But, you know, you got two million people and you're looking out at a sea. You got little kids. You got people on crutches, right? You got all these people and you're like, Well, um, kind of got a problem here, Lord. I mean, did you know there's a sea over here? And, you know, sometimes we, we want to inform God the same way, right? We're going through difficulties and we're like, well, Lord, have you, have you seen my checkbook? Have you taken a look at it lately, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's not good. There's red numbers in there right now, Lord, and, and, you know, it's a big problem. The Lord knows, amen? And so he says, I want you to stop praying at this point and I want you to obey. Take what you've been praying about and obey. Go forward. Heed my word. Start moving. And God wants us to move. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, and stretch your hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now this is interesting. That rod so far has only been used in judgment. The rod was used in every single one of the ten plagues, when, or you know, at least to bring judgment of the plague, right? They would carry the rod with them, and, and he would tell them to do things with the rod, put the water in the water, and brought the blood, and it was carrying that rod around, and, and so far it's only been used for judgment. But now we're going to see that very same rod used for deliverance. To me, this rod is made out of what? Wood. What else was made out of wood? The ark and the cross. And you know what? The cross is a place of judgment and it's a place of deliverance. Amen? And so the rod, that same rod that had brought judgment, was now going to bring deliverance. That same rod who had put its staff into the water to turn the water into blood was now going to be lifted above the water and divide the water and bring deliverance for the people. The cross is either a place that brings judgment to people who reject God or it's a place of deliverance for those who accept Him. And so the rod was raised up. And again, we would now see Him bring deliverance to the people, the children of Israel. The word there divided. It would divide it. It's interesting to me that it divides what? The water. In the Bible, quite often, water is a representation of the Word. In Ephesians Ephesians 5.22, it says, Sanctify your home by the washing of the water by the Word of God. So water in that representation points to the Word. And now he's going to divide the Word. And as they divide the Word and go through the Word, what what comes out the other side? Salvation. The Bible says we are to rightly divide the Word of truth. Amen? And it produces what in our hearts? Salvation. Wisdom. Direction from Almighty God. And so we see here that He holds up the rod, rightly dividing the Word, bringing salvation into those who would enter into it. Verse 17. And I indeed will harden the hearts of Pharaoh... Of the Egyptians, excuse me. And they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Again, Israel's trial produced an opportunity to reveal God's power and for God to be glorified. In the midst of their trial was an opportunity for God to reveal Himself. In the midst of the trials in your life is an opportunity for God to reveal Himself. So can you imagine... Here it is. Can you imagine being one of the Israelites? And you're standing there, the sea's behind you. You're murmuring and you're complaining. And then Moses lifts up his rod, and right before your eyes, the the sea splits open and there's dry ground in front of you. Now, even at that point, it would have taken some faith to step out on that ground, because you're probably wondering, how long is this water going to stay like this, right? But they stepped out, and they stepped onto that dry land, and they began to walk across. And can you imagine being Pharaoh? And being all these chariots, and they come across, they think they've got them cornered, they're about to slaughter them, and all of a sudden they look up, and the seasmen parted, and the, and their Israelites are walking across on dry land. What a ministry to the person of Almighty God, of who He really is. What a testimony to His power. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud that went bef- cloud that went before them stood behind them. Now, what had once directed them now protected them. What had once given them direction and and showed them where to go was now behind them protecting them. You know, to me, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a believer? He guides and He leads and He directs. Amen? Don't we pray for the leading of the Holy Spirit? Is that what we pray for? We pray for guidance from the Holy Spirit. We pray that He would illuminate the Word to us. But He also protects us. And that's what happens here. Is the Lord the angel of God? And many people believe this is a Christophany. This is Jesus Christ Himself who once led them, is now behind them. The angel of God, quite often in the Word, is pointing to our Savior Himself. Verse 20. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. That's the cloud. And this is the cloud of darkness to one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Now, this cloud that was between Israel and Egypt, it illuminated the night for Israel... And it brought darkness into the hearts of Egypt. So the people from the Egyptian side, it was dark. And on the Israel side, it was light. What is this cloud a picture of? It's a picture God's Word. What does God's Word do in the life of a believer? It shines light. Amen? It opens our eyes that we might see. It gives us understanding. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God that shines into our lives and gives us wisdom and understanding and direction and hope. And you know what? It's why we understand what's going on in the world today. People are trying to, you know, people are trying to make peace treaties in Israel. We'll get, give it up, okay? Because there's not going to be any peace there. There might be temporary moments of peace, but until there's not going to be any. Why? Because the Bible says so. The immorality that's going on around us, we can try to fix it, and we should have a burden for that, but the reality is that we know from the Word of God that the Bible says in the end times things will, things will go worse and worse. We understand what life's about because we have the light of God's Word shining upon our lives. But in the darkness, what do they have? Confusion. The Egyptians are confused. They thought they had them cornered. But this cloud is protecting and guiding and directing Israel while bringing darkness upon Egypt. Light to a believer. God gives us wisdom and understanding about the world around us. Helps us to understand what life is really all about. So this cloud, again, darkness to the world, it's a picture of God's Word. You know The Bible says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does the Word of God do? It gives us direction. The Bible says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Have you ever met anybody that just wants to be left alone in their sin? Don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know that this is wrong. I don't care. You know, and you talk to people about the Lord. They don't want to hear it. Why? Because they're afraid that that light will shine on their sin and they don't want it to be exposed. You go into a really dark room and shine a halogen light on a bunch of rats, what do they do? They all scurry, right? And people don't like the Bible. People that want to live in their sin, they'd rather stay in the darkness. Don't show that to me because it brings conviction upon me. Those who stay in the dark, what happens to Egypt? They're going to get wiped out. And those who stay in the dark will be wiped out. And those who stay like Egypt will be wiped out. And, the wipe, and when they're wiped out, they're going to face the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Word of God, darkness to the world, light to God's people. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them to the right hand and on the left. So God delivered his children from impossible circumstances. This is overwhelming. There's no answer. There's no hope. We've got mountains on both sides. We've got a sea behind us, and here comes the enemy. And some of us, we feel that way. Here comes the enemy. We're surrounded. There's no hope. And then you watch God move. And when God moves, what happens? God is glorified. When we see the hand of God, it's an opportunity to minister to others. He reveals His power. It was a testimony to Egypt, but wasn't it also a testimony to Israel? Wasn't it a testimony to Israel too, to see that sea part? Isn't it a testimony to you when you're in the midst of difficulty and you see God do something awesome that just seems impossible? Man, I can't believe... Whoa! You know, I've shared with you guys, I've been a pastor, I don't know, a long time. And you know what's been neat? Is I've had a chance to pray with people. I remember praying with a woman in Southern California. She had cancer throughout her whole body. They'd given her like no time to live. We prayed for her. She calls me at home the next day and she'd gone to the doctor. Her cancer was all gone. And what blew me away was I was shocked. You know, we pray, and then God answers, and we're like, whoa, you know, it really happened, right? And so that was actually a testimony to me, amen? It was a testimony to all her unsaved friends, all her unsafe family, but it was a testimony to me and to her and to her family who knew the Lord too, amen? When we see God move, it's a testimony to a lost world, but it's also something that increases our faith. And no doubt Israel's walking through the water going, whoa, our God's pretty awesome, amen? I mean, we're walking on dry land in the middle of the sea, That should open our eyes. But we're going to hear these guys murmuring again and talking about wanting to go back to Egypt. Because why? Hardened hearts have short memories. Verse 23, "...and the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning, watch, that the Lord looked down on the army of Egypt through the pillar of fire and cloud, and He troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels, so that He drove them with difficulty." And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You know what has happened in ten plagues? Egypt has finally understood who they're fighting. It's taken all this time, and finally they say, God is fighting against us. Their wheels start coming off their chariots, right? They're coming against them, the wheels are coming off, they're, they're riding with difficulty, and God is wiping them out. Why? Because they're coming against His his people. They're coming against His kids. You know what? There's very few things that can get me angry. It's very difficult to get me angry. That's the grace of God. It has nothing to do with me. But I don't get angry very often. But I'll tell you one thing that would cause me to get angry and probably cause me to, to do whatever is necessary, and that's if somebody was attacking one of my children. If somebody was trying to harm one of my kids... I'd have to resign as being pastor because I'm going to smoke that guy probably, right? I mean, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. But I just know in my flesh, if someone's trying to harm my eight-year-old son and is wailing on him, they're in big trouble, right? It's going to be the wrath of Dave, right? I mean, I'm coming. And so here's the thing. I'm an imperfect man, and I love my kids so much that I'm going to do whatever is necessary to protect them. What is God going to do for us? Perfect, holy God. Doesn't he care for us? Yes, he does. Will he allow us to lose stuff that keeps our eyes off him? The answer to that is yes. But you know what? He'll provide your needs. He promises. Does God break his promises? No. Does he love you more than you'll even understand? The answer is yes. And he loves you so much, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He can't take his eyes off of you. You are his treasured possession. And you know what? That's what Israel was to him. Even though they had been blowing it, even though they'd murmured and complained, God watched over them and he delivered them from Egypt. And so the Egyptians come across, and that morning watch is between 2 and 6 a.m., and this pillar of cloud that, again, directed Israel, brought judgment against Egypt. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord with overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh, came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. What percentage of the Egyptian army died? All of it. What percentage of people who walk in darkness, who reject the opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to know God, what percentage of them are going to face His judgment? The answer is all of them. Now, what's interesting to me, a lot of liberal scholars, and I'm looking at some of the, you know, the usual potatoes, you know, the commentators, right? I'm looking at some of those guys, and some of them are saying, well, it's not really the Red Sea, it's the Sea of Reeds. The Sea of Reeds is really just a marsh, and they walked across because the water was only six inches deep. Now, I want to tell you something. If that's true, which it's not, but if it were, it's an even a greater miracle. Because if all the armies of Egypt and all the chariots drowned in six inches of water... That's pretty incredible. Amen? If these guys were going across a marsh and they all drowned, now that's a miracle, man. I mean, they all drowned in 60. Man, they had to have their faces nose down, somehow got in there, all the horses died, right? So, you know, liberal people try to explain away miracles, but you can't explain them away. It's the hand of God. Amen? And that sea parted, and that sea swallowed them up, and they were delivered because they had rightly divided the water or the word. Again, what an awesome miracle. Verse 29. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What a picture for Israel. Delivered by God, and the enemy smoked. And you know what? That's a picture of what will happen with us ultimately. We're going to be delivered from our sin and our ultimate enemy. Satan is going to be smoked. Amen? He's, our God is a victorious God. He's a great and an awesome God. He's faithful and he's in control. Only the Lord could save them, and only the Lord can save us. Israel's trial allowed them to experience the intimate, pre, intimate presence of Almighty God. The Lord was there, he was with them. Look at verse 31, we're done. Thus, Israel saw a great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. So what happened when they saw the miraculous? It increased their faith. What did they do? They began to believe Moses. They began to fear God. And these are good things. The revealed power of God allowed them to experience His intimate presence. It was a testimony to the world. And in the end, it turned this group of murmuring, complaining, unbelieving people who desired to return to Egypt into people who feared the Lord, believed in him, and his servant Moses. Let me ask you a question. Wasn't it a good thing that they got stuck between those two mountains in that sea? Wasn't that the greatest thing that happened to them as far as being able to increase their faith? When you're in the midst of a trial, it may not seem like the greatest thing that could happen to you. But God is going to use it to increase your faith. He's going to use it to give you opportunities to share your faith with people around you. He's going to use it to reveal to you his power and his glory. And so praise the Lord, like it says in James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, but when, you fall into various trials. Because you will better understand your reliance upon God. And again, you'll witness His power. So in closing, in the midst of trials, throughout the Bible, you see the greater intimacy with God. I can give you 500 examples, I'll just give you a couple. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of my favorite stories, Daniel chapter 3. Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael were their names. They changed them to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the names of false gods. And they said, you guys bow, or we're throwing you in the fire. And we know the story. They wouldn't bow. Nebuchadnezzar got fired up. He fired the fire up seven times hotter. And he threw them in. And who was in the fire with them? Jesus. And they had to be thrown in the fire. And they were bound when they put them in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar was screaming at them. And what did he say? He had to call them back out. Come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Why? Because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without Him. You know what? Sometimes the greatest place we can be is in a trial so difficult that it keeps us desperate for God. Amen. That keeps us on our knees and seeking after Him. We start resting in our bank account. We start resting in our own abilities. We're going to get our eyes off of Jesus. We're going to lift up our eyes and look at the chariots instead of lifting up our eyes and looking at Him. May our eyes only be on Him. Corey Tinboom said this: The only way you'll ever know. That Jesus is all you need is when Jesus is all you have. Corey Tim Boom, and we know that story. She was thrown into to a concentration camp, Nazi Germany. And I love that quote. Let me say it to you one time. The only way you'll know that Jesus is all you need is when Jesus is all you have. And remember this. God doesn't exist for me. What I mean by that is this. I exist for him. He was, he's always been. And he created me that I might have a relationship with him. He doesn't exist that I might be glorified. I exist that he might be glorified. Amen? A lot of people have that switch. They think God exists so that I can be glorified and I can get stuff and I can be comforted and I can command him and I can tell him what to do. There's much bunch of people on TV telling you that's why God's there. A big Santa Claus up in the sky and you just tell him what to do and he's just waiting. And, and he exists for your good pleasure. Other way around. We exist for His good pleasure. Amen? It's not about us. It's about Him. It's not about my comfort. It's about His glory. It's not about my will. It's about His will. It's not about me. It's about Him. I exist that He may be glorified through me. So next time you're between a rock and a hard place, look up and watch God work. Next time you're going through a trial, just pray and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to be still. Help me to trust You. And watch what God does. The worship team will come back up We'll close with a word of prayer and a worship song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, that when there's chaos around us, that you're in control. And Lord, when we're going through difficulties of life, that Lord, you use those things to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might look up. And Lord, I do pray, Father God, that we would not become self-reliant, but we would be fully reliant upon you. And Lord, that our faith and our hope and our trust and our joy would come from our relationship with you. Lord, that we would not seek to find joy in the things that the world has to offer. But, Father God, I pray if there's anything in our lives tonight that keeps our eyes off of you, that you would remove them. Whatever it is, Father, I pray in my own life, Lord, if there's anything that stands in the way that keeps my eyes off of you, keeps me from doing your perfect will, just take it away. Lord, we know that when this time has come and passed, that only what we've done for Christ will last. Give us an eternal perspective. Give us eternal eyes. And, Lord, I pray in the midst of trials that you would be glorified you give us an opportunity to share our faith with others. And Lord, that our faith would grow. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.